So 1 Samuel 16, 1 to uh, verse 13. Now, it's sort of topical, this text, given that two weeks ago we had a leadership spill in, uh, in Australia where we had the Liberal Party. I mean, uh, John Frederick here is an American immediately sent out a text saying, what the heck, how can you just roll a leader like this? Uh, and then a Prime Minister um, is wondering what country he was in, what did he come to? And, and, and there's a sense in which I guess the Liberal Party had to do some thinking about who is the best leader to go forward. Uh, and there's a sense in which then 1 Samuel 16 occurs within a leadership spill and is engaged with the question of how you see God's chosen king. So in terms of the leadership spill, right before this chapter, verse 10 of 15, it says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. As what seems to be true of leadership spills occurs next. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. There seems to be a certain level of grief that people always experience within a leadership spill. And it continues at the start of our story here at chapter 16, verse 1, where God picks it up again and says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And what we're about to get is a story that's engaged with this question about how you see God's chosen king. And it seems like it's a challenge. And as we're reading this, though it's the first time in the Hebrew, well, the Old Testament, we'll call it the Old Testament, first time in the Bible that we meet the most famous king in Israel, David. I mean, a lot of the Psalms are written by him. A lot of Psalms speak about him. Uh, and yet, this is the first time we meet him, but he's not actually the main focus of the story. And I was, one way of thinking about who should you focus on in a story like this is something John Cleese uh, said, the comedian, about the difference between American and English comedy or humour. And he uses the waiter, as you might imagine from uh, you know, Faulty Towers, as, an, as, as the illustration. He says, in American humour... Um, you get a bumbling, incompetent waiter and the protagonist will be the couple who are having dinner and have to suffer this. And we're surprised at what they go through as a result of this idiot, right? John Frederick just laughs his head off at that sort of stuff. <laughs> Americans love it. Protagonist is the person upon whom this incompetent, bumbling fool is inflicted upon. Whereas in English humour, the protagonist is the waiter. It's your manual, right? And so now we're surprised and enjoy his silly things and the awkward positions that he finds himself in, the couple don't really mean much. They're just there to fill the story. And in terms of this story, it's a bit more like the English type of humour because the attention isn't on David or David's family, Jesse's family, who are the recipients, it seems, of some pretty silly stuff on Samuel's part and put through a funny sort of a process. The attention is all on Samuel. So the person who told this story is saying, watch him like a hawk, because you're going to learn something about the challenge of seeing God's chosen one. Now, the first thing we learn about Samuel, and it may come as a surprise, because we like to think of him as this prophet in this book, 
is that he's got a problem with disobedience. So verse 2, after he's been told to go to Jesse, he says, Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. So he tells him to take a sacrifice to Jesse as a bit of a ruse because it seems being a kingmaker in this way is going to be a little dicey. People don't like you somehow coming and anointing someone else to be the king. If someone finds out, they'll kill you. But notice that Samuel's first move here is one of disobedience. And he's not really happy with what he's been asked to do. Now, that, that's a little bit of a problem, considering what's just happened to Dave, uh, Saul in the previous chapter, where, again, a person makes a sacrifice. In fact, Saul's very good at making poor sacrifices, chapter 13. He, uh, he makes one when he's attacking the Philistines, thinks, I'll just throw down a sacrifice and I'll push these, I'll win against the Philistines by making a sacrifice. Gets in trouble. Again, he fights the Amalekites in chapter 15, and he's in trouble because he just gets <coughs> some of the spoils that he takes from the Amalekites and just makes an offering, and he gets it in the neck from God, who says, back in verse 22 of the last chapter, Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience to the voice of the Lord? Surely to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And so it seems interesting that Samuel now disobeys straight after this incident. And I think it's interesting that God then gives him a sacrifice, not to achieve what a sacrifice is normally for, but to be quite deceptive, really, to help him accomplish something. It seems as though the story tries to tag Samuel at this point as cut from the same cloth as Saul, in a sense. He's liable to offer sacrifices for something other than what they were meant to be used for. He's disobedient, and God says, well, go offer a sacrifice. I mean, you guys are using these things for everything these days other than as a sign of your obedience to me. So Samuel's character doesn't look crash hot at the opening of this chapter. The next thing that happens, he goes, he goes off to offer this sacrifice. So he did what the Lord commanded, came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And the reason they're asking that, if you look at the end of the last chapter, he's chopped a guy called a gag to pieces, ISIS style. And so they're wondering, what are you going to do to us? Verse 5, he said, peaceably, it's all right, boys, I've come, and maybe women, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. What comes next in the story is really where, now, this is where we're supposed to watch him like a hawk, okay? At this point... We're supposed to watch how Samuel goes about seeing the chosen king that God's already told him he's going to have, okay, that he's got from there in Jesse's house. So just watch him. Verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not, and and it, it seems as though, The translation here in the NRSV isn't very helpful. 
in that it uses a word other than to see, or the word that he looked on Eliab, okay? But God says, do not gaze on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks literally, sees the heart. You see what's gone wrong? This disobedient Samuel has sort of cut across exactly what God said to do. He says, I'm going to send you there, and then you're going to anoint the one to whom I, the one whom I name to you. But the moment Samuel sees Eliab, look at this big bloke, he says, surely this is him, right? You see, God's critique of that is that, whoa, 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 you look on the outside appearance, whereas I see the heart. And see, Samuel has some visual impairment going on, and that's a theme so far of the book, if you remember. Eli, the priest in the opening chapters, is progressively unable to see physically, and that's associated with uh, spiritual blindness. It's a corrupt, moral, spiritual state of people living under the leadership of Eli. But even Samuel uh, himself, if you look back to chapter 2, Verse 22, verse 3. Uh, I think it's 23. Where we've got Samuel and Saul. The first time... Okay, where's the bit where he's really tall? Those people listening to the tape, you can go and look as well. But you'll notice the first time Saul comes and stands before the people. uh, We're told... Ah, yes, we are. Verse 22. Verse 23, sorry. Then they ran and brought him from there. That is, the people went and got Saul. When he took his stand among the people, he was head and shoulders taller than any of them. Height's a big big thing in this book of uh, Samuel, as we'll see with Goliath next week. The moment the narrator talks about how tall he is, Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the one whom the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. And so Samuel's already shown his tendency to look on outward appearance. He didn't really acquire much at all. Strike, look at the size of this bloke. He'll do, you know. So he's now got Saul, who was an absolute disaster. And here he's repeating the problem. And so the narrator, and God here, is saying, your problem is you're blinded by appearances. There's a, there's a great uh, movie, I don't know if you've seen it, called Moneyball. Um, I think Bill Stewart, maybe the, the author of the book, they made into a 2011 movie with Brad Pitt. Uh, if you're in for Brad Pitt. It's about a true story of a baseball team in the States. Uh, and I think this happened about 2003, 2005, something, the true story. Uh, is that Brad Pitt represents a guy who used to be a talent scout. In fact, he was picked up as a baseballer, as a talent scout, and then failed to deliver on all the promises made by the talent scouts. So he thinks there's something up with the whole system of choosing well when it comes to baseball players. And so he runs into a guy, a little bloke from uh, Boston. He's gone through Harvard, and I think he's an economist. And this guy says to him, do you know what? Everyone's looking at the wrong thing when we're choosing baseball players. They're looking at what does this guy look like when he runs or, 
or what does his throw look like, or what is, even what does his girlfriend look like? They're looking at everything but what matters for baseball. So you end up paying all this money for the best players, but they're the best players because they've got the good-looking wife, or they've got the, the physique or whatever. But there are people out there, if you measure something differently, if you take some different measurements into account, so there's no striking one is, there's a guy who gets the most walks, you know, so he gets three, three no balls, bang, he just walks to first place. Least sexy way of winning a baseball game in the world, I imagine. But wins games and he's going really cheap. No one can see him because you're looking at the wrong thing. And it seems as though that's the problem with humans here. We look at the outside and we're blinded to, well, what God sees. But then we've got to ask, what does God see? Because he says he sees the heart. And we have to be very careful here at this moment. Because if you interpret, we associate the heart with character. That is, what's the moral fabric of this person? How does he or she behave? And so on. And if we go down that reading of this text, we'll end up with a moral lesson on leadership. If you want to pick leaders well, don't look at external appearances. It doesn't, they don't have to be but ugly, notice. When you get down to David, it says he had beautiful eyes and was handsome, ruddy, all this sort of thing, okay? The point of the story is, we're not looking for the but ugly leader, it's just... Appearances don't really matter very much. We're looking for, for something else. But the question would be then, if you take that line of reading, that it's about character, so we've got to somehow look at the heart and choose. Well, and this may all be, that may be true, common sense and so on, but you could use Moneyball to come to the same conclusion about choosing leaders. What really I think is going on here is when God says, but he sees the heart, when he sees the heart, in this context, he's saying he sees David's chosenness. That's, that's the point here. The reason why I think it is that way is that if you look at when he sends Samuel in the first place, I've provided for myself a king among his sons. He's already got a person in mind. Uh, when he gets down to Eliab in verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely this is him. But God says, no, I've rejected him. And then every son who comes past after that moment, Samuel keeps saying, he is not chosen. He is not chosen. He is not chosen. You get into all sorts of problems if you talk about character at this point, because David lacks a bit of character when it comes to being an adulterer and a murderer. And it also would make you wonder why didn't, what was wrong with the other sons. And then finally, it would be interesting that when a comment is made about David, he's ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and handsome. Says nothing about his character. So it seems as though the point of this text is saying humans can't see the chosenness of the king. You're blind to it. You just can't see it. There's a problem here. Only God sees the heart of his chosen one, and therefore makes that recommendation, you see, so that now Samuel sees him. He's blind to him. So then you've got to ask, then what would the application of a text like, what would the application of a text like this be then? That's the point of the text, is to say, well, God's the one who sees the chosenness of his king. Who would the audience be for a text like this? And you'd have to say Samuel is very aware of 
this book of Samuel is aware of the exile, a time where they're without a king, a time when they're without a nation, without a temple, and they must have been looking from where will our help come from? Who's going to save us? And so it seems a text like this is saying, be very careful about who you back in in a leadership spell. Because you cannot predict who God, he could use someone quite unlikely, like this David. I mean, there's that theme across the whole Bible, isn't it? Cain is looked over for his younger twin, Abel. Jacob and Esau and so on. And here we've got the youngest of all these sons chosen over the others to be the king. And so you look at this and you sort of think, the message has to be, it's very difficult to see God's chosen. Yet when we read this text, we know who David is. We know he's chosen because of everything written down about him after this, including his adulterous affairs and murder. But there's everything else that goes with us and his accomplishments, his, his building an empire. We know he's chosen by what he's done. And so I suspect it's recommending to an exilic or people living without a king about be prepared to find that God's chosen is very unlike what you expected. What came to mind when doing this was, looking at this talk, was actually Isaiah 53. If I read just the first three verses. So again, Isaiah 53 knows of people without king. And here it says, Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. If you kept reading, you'd realise this person is of great significance for the future of God's people. We have no memory and no memory recorded here of exactly who it's talking about. I mean, we can run very quickly to Christ, and I'm going to go there about now. But <laughs> at the time, nothing is recorded of what this particular person did. But it still resonates very deeply with what we looked at in 1 Samuel 16. That God's chosen will take us by surprise. And then here is the Lord Jesus baptised by John in Matthew 3, the Spirit coming down upon him just as it comes upon David. But then the Gospels, particularly Gospel of Mark, obsessed with the question, who is he? You know, who is this person? And all the leaders at that time thinking, well, you don't seem to look anything like what we expected. Yeah. I can't see him. And you would say, yeah, well, well, that's what Samuel says. The book of Samuel is... You look on outward appearances, you cannot see his chosenness. So you say, well, how do we know who Christ is? Well, it's going to be what he's done. David, I mean, that story remains because of what David ended up doing, what God did with David. And we have this memory of Christ because of what people knew of what he had done. So what is the rubber hits the road application? Okay, so I'm still quite abstract here. It's always the hardest bit, I think, is bringing it down to, to say, well, did this change anything? And I often like to think about application in terms of what I'd say to my kids. I think that's 
Well, I heard my 14-year-old the other day say he's bored by the talks he's hearing Sundays, and I think that should never happen. So I think surely we should pitch our talks so that they connect with at least the 14-year-old girl or guy um, so they understand. It's pretty safe to sit around there, you'd imagine, right? I'm not trying to... Cri- if anyone's listening to this now online who's been preaching to my son, I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe just spend a little bit more time on his age group. But, but there are two, two things that I would say because they're at an age at the moment where you've got to say society like ours, if we want to talk about plausibility structures, which we're sort of referring to with the appearance thing, you know what I mean? Rules that determine or govern how you make choices about what is right, wrong, that sort of thing. So, a long time ago, the Earth was considered the middle of the universe type thing. The idea that there'd be life on another planet, you couldn't even conceive of it. Now we know that there are millions or billions, how many other planets there are in the world, possibly with water on them, you pretty much anticipate they will find life somewhere in the universe because the plausibility structures for for making that judgment have changed so much, right? The plausibility structures that Samuel operates on, that you operate on, that I operate on, are that, for some reason, looking good matters when you choose leaders. You know, there's things like, if in this room, if you, let's say it was a room full of people, that you didn't even, they're all strangers, and then you had to take a straw poll of who's the smartest person in the rule. Apparently, we invariably choose the tallest. Um, for no reason, but that's just how we make our, our decisions. When it comes to my kids at the moment, they're living in a world that makes it very difficult, I think, to believe and to follow the king and to actually identify that Jesus is God's chosen king. I mean, the plausibility structures even pull them back far enough to say, is, there a cho- is, is there any sense you could have a chosen king? Does God even exist? You know, this sort of question. And so I think how things... How, how I'd apply this to that conversation around the table with my kids when that question's around is, well... This alerts us to the problems we have, first of all, if you've got, uh, in making this decision or making this, uh, or, or forming that belief about Christ. There are other things at play that prevent you and prevent this world from recognising Christ as King. In fact, my son's got this terrible knee injury at the moment, but I think he's starting to milk it to get days off school. So I said to him this morning, I said, can you just walk across the lounge room so I can take a look at where you're up to because you want a day off. And he's walking across the lounge room and he's had a huge link going on. I'm sure it wasn't that bad last night. <laughs> I said, mate, I'm looking on the outside here. Can you just quickly dip into your own little heart, big heart, tell me what's really going on. Is that really sore or a limb? Because I, I'm flying blind here. And maybe this is a text that tells them You can ask the same questions and call out others as well when they want to say, this is all a load of rubbish that Jesus could ever be king. Because they're bringing their own blindness to it that's informed by all sorts of assumptions about what that king would look like. The flip side of that is because then they're still going to want to know, well, how do I ever make a decision on this? Uh, They could throw that back at me. Then I think we'd say... Well, the tradition says that it's what Jesus has done that should give you confirmation of who he claims to be or who God says he is. That is, I try to take them through and say, well, what has this chosen king 
accomplished. And I like what John had uh, in this, at the end of the song, that he, he had a sin. Christ has died, and Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. That there's this human testimony there that Christ has died, and those who know him says that he will be risen, he has risen, and that he will come again. And what does that say, and how does that resonate with your expectations about what this world should be like? 